forever. Dog. Hi, it's me, Ben. Um, and this is sort of an ad, but it's not really an ad because I'm telling you about something that I give a damn about. Um, we've talked in the past about the ATX Television Festival. You've heard recordings as podcasts uh, that we've put out that were recorded at ATX from past years. It really is one of my favorite uh, things to do, one of my favorite times of year. It's happening this year, June 7th to 10th. It's right around the corner. Uh, so go to Austin and do it. And they're, they're doing some cool stuff there. They've got a Nash Bridges uh, writer's room reunion. They got the creators of The Good Wife and The Good Fight, the people behind The Americans, Boy Meets World, Drunk History. Uh, David Simon will be there. But in addition to the festival, ATX has started a podcast, and you should listen to it. It takes a deep dive with some of the biggest names in television. It's called The TV Campfire. It's a podcast about all things TV. It's like going to the festival, but you don't have to leave your home. What I love about the festival is it was made by Caitlin and Emily, who are two women who love TV so much that they decided to start this festival about it. And they discovered that there are thousands of us who feel the same way and want to flood into Austin to be a part of that and celebrate television. Um, it's often described as the festival and the podcast is this very same thing for people who love DVD extras, for people who own the complete West Wing box set, for people who own the complete The Wire box set, the complete Gossip Girl box set. ATX Television Festival is the ultimate summer getaway for TV fans and industry. And now you can make the trip with your headphones. The podcast takes some of the best guests and some of the most interesting topics that are explored at the festival on the panels that you've heard on this very podcast. And they do a deep dive into that world. They've already put out a couple of episodes. Uh, the first one is all about showrunners. It's got Carlton Cuse and Carrie Aaron, friends of this show, friends of the ATX Festival, uh, talking about what it means to be a showrunner. And it's a lot. Um, they've put out an episode about music and TV uh, that Jason Kadams uh, is a part of. You'll hear future episodes with the creators behind shows such as Friends, One Day at a Time, The Good Wife, Cougar Town, Scrubs, The Wire. Get your David Simon in your ears. You don't want to miss a single episode. Subscribe to The TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. And see you at ATX. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! We are here for the director and showrunner collaboration panel, a panel that I myself am going to be sitting in the audience for, a topic that I'm excited to hear about. Um, I'm going to introduce your moderator, a director in her own right, an Austin gal herself, uh, Kat Candler, director of Hellion and Queen Sugar. Thank you, guys. Um, so, yes, I'm producing director of a show called Queen Sugar on OWN, and I'm super psyched to be home in Austin. We've been shooting for a long time, so it's nice to come back for a quick little break and to host and be part of ATX Festival. So without further ado, I would like to, let's see, we're going to bring in Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, showrunners of The Americans, Tommy Schlamy, who is director of The Americans, legendary, uh, Kevin Falls showrunner of Pitch, the Paris Barkley, who director of Pitch and head of our DGA, and showrunner of Snowfall, Dave Andron. Yay. Okay, so I'm just going to start out with, um, we'll, we're going to go back. 
And we're going to start with first time on a set and your first experience, whether in the writer's room or actually in production on a set. And what was that? What was it a PA? Was it a director? What was that first experience stepping onto the magical world of television? You, you seem to have turned your attention to me. We're well, right here. <laughs> uh, I was in between semesters at college, and I took an unpaid production assistant position on a TV movie directed by Jerry Smith, written by, no, uh, Jerry Friedman, directed by April Smith. And uh, what I found is that, as you said, there's magic on the set. And uh, I just stayed for every moment I could to see how everything was done and to watch how everybody came together and take what, what was on, took what was on the page and put it onto the screen. Mm -hmm. Nice. We're going to go down the line. Uh, Graham Yost had hired me to work on a uh, science fiction show called Falling Skies. And I'd written a script, and I'd, then I'd flown to Toronto to be the writer on set, which I literally had no idea what I was doing, no idea what was going on. And I went to set and I just sat there for like a week and all I did was pray that nobody would ask me anything. <laughs> and incredibly enough, that's exactly what happened. Um, I was, uh, I had moved to New York. I was uh, driving a cab and I got a job as a PA on a movie called The Money. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think I'd ever, still to this day, been happier about getting a job. Uh, I got this job, it was this incredible thing. There was a wonderful DP named Burley Wartees, and he let me hang out with the camera guys. He let me, by the end, load the Mitchells. At that time, you'd go into a black bag and got to load the Mitchells. But what I remember most about that experience was there was a director who shall remain unnamed, Chuck Workman, who, uh, <laughs> uh, who actually, you know, it was a very small independent movie with a guy named Lawrence Luckinville. And um, I was walking across with the Mitchell, with the mag, and he, who I think was just probably a little out of his league and felt very insecure about directing this movie, started screaming at me. I was making $25 a week, and he was screaming, what are you doing? You just messed my, my whole rehearsal, you fucking idiot, and it was just horrible horrible. And I walked away and Burley, who was this old DP, came up to me and went, look, this guy's just really insecure. And it actually was one of the most valuable lessons I ever had, which is, you know, that's the last thing, you know, what you can learn from people that you never want to be and never want to be that guy and try to find the guy making $25 who feels like me on any set to sort of empower them the most they can. So. I, um, I wrote this movie called The Temp. Um, not everybody at once, please. Uh, and it was in Portland, and I went on the set, and I was a, just a feature writer, right? And I got there early, and I'm, a, I'm in awe. And I see the Panthers, I see the camera over there, and I sneak over, and I, I want to look through it, right? And I look through it, and I hear this, hey! And it's the camera operator who goes, you can't put your eye on that. We'll all get pink eye. <laughs> This is, I'm sorry. And then I just slowly made my way into television. <laughs> Hello. Oh. 
That's a good story. Um, I, I worked in advertising for 12 years before I was ever a director, so I was on sets as an advertising copywriter. But the first one I remember was we were doing a commercial for McDonald's, which I had written, uh, for McDonald's Mighty Wings. Perhaps you remember them. <laughs> They're purportedly delicious. Um, and I, was, uh, I, I had cast the commercial with the, you know, the agency, and we had cast this young lady uh, who we thought was Latina, uh, because you can't ask an actor if they're Latina or not. We just cast her. Anyway, it ended up being Juliana Margulies. She had really curly hair. <laughs> and, and as I later learned from her, it's how she got into SAG, was this McDonald's commercial that I had directed in 1986 or something. So anyway, I do remember vividly being unhappy with how the director was performing. And, and I realized every time a writer gives me a note, I remember sitting in that chair and just, it wasn't my vision. The way they were moving the camera just wasn't satisfactory. Uh, and as a writer at the agency, you were allowed to bring that up with the director until the director becomes angry with you. And sometimes, in the case of Joe Pitka, throws a football at you or something. Uh, but generally, we had to have one person who could speak to the director. It wasn't me, so I'd have to bring my sort of concerns to the boss, and eventually the boss said, shut the fuck up. Uh, yeah, the first, I had, when I'd first moved to L.A., I had, a buddy of mine had gotten me PA jobs on commercials, uh, and so you just show up, and it's this big moving machine, and you have no idea what you're doing, and people are like, where's Crafty? And you're like, is that an actual person named Crafty? Uh, people are like, I'm 10-1, and you're like, that sounds great. Um, enjoy, enjoy that. So you just kind of hustle and try to keep up. Um, but it, I guess it's kind of a great way to start, because then when you get there, maybe on, you know, I feel like the next time, then a, a year or two later, when I was on my first show, and was the writer on my episode, and showed up, I was like, oh my god, at least I had spent some time, you know, getting people coffee and trying to hustle so that you understand how hard those people are working, uh, that as you move up, you've got to be sweet to those guys. And, and that was the first scripted experience where I think on day two, the director, who was a lovely guy named Guy, guy Furland, uh, was having, there was like a little trouble blocking a scene, and I was like, oh man, let me get in. I know what to do with this. <laughs> Which was not the thing to do. And, but he was very sweet about, about taking me aside and being like, all right, young man, here's how this, you just stay over here, and if you have something. <laughs> so the protocols, I guess, are what I'm saying, is, was a whole other thing to, uh, to learn. But you don't know when you show up on the first day and you're like, oh, it's my thing, I wrote it. It's like, it's not your thing, man. It's everybody's thing, man. So, can, so I know every, you know every TV show is different and sort of the dynamics between the writer's room and the production, and I would love to kind of hear from each of you guys your experiences with either this one or another one of what that dynamic looks like, whether you know, if you have a writer's room in L.A. and everybody's in production in Toronto or whatever, but what is the dynamic of those two... Um, what's the dynamic going on? And it can be, again, with this show or with another show that you've experienced... Oh. The, and that is the dynamic on the Americans. <laughs> um, well, here you have three Americans sitting together um, on a couch, much to Tommy Shlomi's chagrin. We'll get into that later. Uh, not that we're all together, but that we're all together on a couch. It's a directorial issue he has. <laughs> you can ask him later as you get Q&A. Um, so on the Americans... We're lucky in that our writing offices are right next to our post-production offices, which are across the street from our production facility. So we're there. We're there, but we spend as little time on set as possible on our show. Our focus 
is writing the very best scripts we can, getting them done early, getting them extensively rewritten, and spending a lot of time with our production team, particularly with our producing director and with our directors, before we shoot. So that by the time they're on set, they know what our original intent was, and we are in a totally collaborative communication, collaborative space. There's always a wonderful moment with Tommy during our tone meetings. Tone meetings for us can last anywhere from three hours to 10 hours with meals ordered in. We really get granular on scenes. And Tommy never lets a scene go until he knows that he's in sync. And every episode, there'll be one scene that we're just not quite communicating right. And we'll talk around it and talk around it and talk around it. And then there's this moment, he'll put his fingers like this and he'll think and think. And then suddenly he just goes, I got it. And as soon as Tommy says, I got it, you know you can stop talking and move on. And part of the magic for us is that things come back from set that are richer, deeper, and surprising to us. But they're surprising within that collaborative context that, that's been worked out beforehand. We also spend a lot of time in our process in editing, in post-production, which involves a lot of writing and rewriting in and of itself. So that's a, what have I missed? Well, the only thing I'll add, because I spent five years kind of wondering about this, and I'd be interested in your perspective, that these tone meetings, which, as Joel said, go on so long, they're like important but unbearable at the same time. And I finally, in year five, I asked our producing director, Chris Long, how he actually utilizes all that stuff that comes out, and I'd be interested if it's the same for you or totally different. He said, well, I take in everything you say, and then I put it in the back of my head, and when I'm on set, if something's happening that totally contradicts it, then it comes into the front of my mind so I can say, oh, that's kind of not what they wanted. But otherwise, it's just sort of sitting there in the back, which made sense to me. Can you talk just a little bit about what a tone meeting is? And it's like you have a scene that yeah, you guys it's are where discussing. Yeah, you, you go through the script scene by scene, and we talk about, often even line by line, just what we were thinking, what our intention was, what we want to get across with that. Um, well, you know, it, it's interesting because for me, the Americans is a very different experience than basically what I've been doing for the last 15 years. The American is the only show that I haven't executive produced in 15 years and, uh, and working on it, and it has been an absolute joy, an absolute joy on many levels. Uh, but so it's, it's, you know, I have to put on a different hat. Most of the shows that I've worked on as being a producer, director, executive producer on that show, it is an incredibly collaborative process. Uh, and specifically if it, I mean, Dave and I are working together on Snowfall. And, uh, and in fact, I didn't direct on Snowfall. I just came in and executive produced and worked with Dave, and you know, we ran that show together and trying to figure out the best way to sort of move these very, very ambitious television shows. What, you know, and so for me, it's just the more there is a sense of collaboration between those entities right away. So whether it's the director working with the writers of that episode. And part of it is I think Chris makes a, a good point. Do you know? I, I have to say it's pretty deeply stored with me. Um, because at that moment, all I want to do is take ownership. I mean, I think my job as a director is to take ownership. My job is no longer to try to execute what you want. Uh, and what I hope is I've understood that enough that now I'm processing it through this weird thing 
and that will come out and tell the story that I'm, I, I feel so confident that I understand what it is that they want. Uh, and that's sort of the way that I can communicate even in a tone meeting with other directors that I'm working with as an executive producer. And, and also for me, tone meetings are, it, it's a two-way street. I want the director to be able to speak up and say, I don't get this, and let me tell you why I don't get this, and maybe is there another way to approach it? And people like Joe and Joel and Dave and Kevin, I mean, the, the nice thing about this panel is I've worked with everybody on this panel, you know, which is, um, says something about my age more than uh, it being a nice thing. But so that's, that's part of the process, which is uh, working with them and trying to make sure they can get, take it so that they can own it, much like you work with an actor. Let the actor own that scene, not try to direct that actor to to do what you want the actor to do. I think you're also, at least I'm lucky when you get to start with somebody like Paris or Tommy from Ben. I never started from Jump Street with you, but with Paris coming on to pitch, he directed the pilot. So when you get to start at the beginning, you're kind of like, you know, shoulder to shoulder as you move forward. But on every show, you, you always, I don't know about you guys, but you pick something up on every show. You learn, you take it with you to the next show. And to John Wells, he taught his producer meetings and we did all that. But but Paris this year, about a week before we were getting ready to go in the room, he goes, so, um, I think I was in your office at Paramount, he goes, I'd like to sit in the writer's room at the beginning. And I went, Jesus. <laughs> I, know, um, I was like thrown off because like, well, what happens if you don't like me? Like the, way I, like the way I run the room? Is it director? Shall I go sit behind Video Village and like, go over every shot? So I called, I don't know if I told you this, I called Dan I go, Dan, what do you think about this? He goes, wow, that's weird. I I don't know. I go, we got to say yes. We love Paris, right? He's really smart. He did a great pilot. But still, it was, I was suddenly very self-conscious. It was the smartest thing I wish I could say I ever did. But what Paris came up with, it was great. Because he also got to learn about my story since. He had incredible ideas. He knows stories, directed a few episodes. Because he's old, old like the rest of us here. Um, almost everybody. Um, but it was just... But it, turned, but it turned out to be a great process and had so many ideas. Besides just directing, we have a great vision for the show. He had great story sense. So it was one of those things that I probably don't tell the next director if we do it. Don't hold me to it. But it seems like a, it seems like a really good idea moving forward to have the director in there from Jump Street. So. Um, I was going to try to jump ahead of Kevin to talk about that experience. I, I don't remember that drama, but because it was so easy for me, he, I called and he told me yes, like the next day. I think you read a script that I had written, you saw that I could actually write. It was all cool. But anyway, what I wanted to say is I've had so many different experiences as an executive producer, director, some of which have been really terrible and some of which have been difficult, and some of which have been problematic, and I'm not going to name names, and don't ask me in the Q&A, because this is being recorded forever. But in the case of Pitch, it was the best experience I ever had, and not just because I was in the writer's room, because I've been in the writer's room and other shows. It's sort of what, what I do as an executive producer, but the best thing about it was that there were seven different executive producers, and one of them had a title showrunner, which was with a small s, I like to say, and that was Kevin. 
Now, Kevin didn't create the pilot. Dan Fogelman and Rick Singer created it. Rick originally wrote it as a movie. Dan Fogelman adapted it into a television series. And they were both involved in it and involved in the story, and that was the process. But Kevin had been brought on to run the show, to really be the person we came back. And it was very clear what his responsibilities are. And that's one of the problems that I've had with both the term and the role of writers as showrunners or executive producers, is that it's not clear exactly what they mean by that, and sometimes it's caused problems. But in the case of Kevin, it was very clear. Kevin was the guy you go to in the end. He's the guy you go to to get your answers that need to be resolved. He's the one who says, we need to cut the scene. He's the one who says, this is the right casting person to have in the end. He's the person who becomes the backstop. And even though he wasn't the person who created the show, he played that role extremely well, and we could count on it in production. And I didn't feel like my role was diminished or it was bad. I just was glad to have clarity because I've been on shows where there have been 10 executive producers, smash, and you saw <laughs> the title says it all. There, I will say a name. You saw what happens when, you know, you have 10 executive producers and, many, and I didn't know, really, even though one was titularly called the showrunner, that person was not really necessarily empowered to be that. I mean, Steven Spielberg was one of the showrunners and would call up and stuff. So it was very difficult to do a show where there's a lot of voices at the top. It really helps to have the clarity of having one person identified as the person who you can go to and make that relationship work. That's, that's what I've discovered. Yeah, I mean, look, to, to continue speaking for a second on that collaboration, like getting this job, which was my first job running a show, and there was some of that term where you're like, oh, that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. Like, oh, I'm excited to be a showrunner or whatever. And then, like, they paired up with Tommy, and you kind of start doing it, and, like, people start calling you that, and I could kind of see Tommy, like, shifting a little bit. <laughs> and eventually he was kind of like, it's fucking bullshit. And you're like, wait, what? And he's like, well, you can't, like, I, that term, because you can't do it alone. And the reality is you really can't do it alone. And having a partner... Who can be there? We shot everything. We were all in L.A., um, which made it even feasible. But like, I can't. I can't imagine if you were shooting a show. You know, one time I was on a show that shot out of town. I can't imagine doing it without a producing director, somebody that you could really trust to be there to kind of be the keeper of everything because you're on the same page. You've gone through the scripts. Um, but even to be in the same place, to have somebody there who is your right hand, because you can't be in two places at once, and and knows how to how to keep the set running and deal with the actors, and he's a magician in the editing room. Like it just even with the scripts when things come in, because you get so granular and you're so close to it in the writers' room, and it's so great to have somebody then come in at that kind of thirty thousand foot view and look at it and just be like, yeah, but this and this and this, and you're like, oh right, of course. Um, but it helps to have a little distance and that clarity. And if you have a partnership that works the way that this one did on this show, I, you just can't imagine doing it then without that person. And just to kind of jump off of that, with those conversations between the producer-director, even in the individual directors, and the writer's room, how much is shifting just the logistics of locations, the logistics of time, the logistics of actors, how much is shifting within each draft for you guys between uh, those conversations? I mean, if any. Yeah, I mean, they definitely do. You know, even you, you know, you guys were talking about those tone meetings. Like, by the time you get to that tone meeting, you've got a script and you're feeling pretty good about it, right? The network's probably read it. You've gotten your notes. Everybody, you're selling in this place of like, oh, we're in pretty good shape. And then you sit down and start going through it and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, you're not, you're not probably rebreaking massive story stuff, but you're like, oh, that scene, like, let's flip. Let's have that person come in. Like, you start to really get into the granular stuff with somebody who's seeing it with the director's eye because not all writers, obviously, are direct. I would never, I've never had a director. 
you know, like, and they come in and start seeing it, the physicality of it and what the, lo- the locations start coming in and you're like, oh, we got to do this because the door is there. I mean, it really does start to change on a very physical level quickly. Um, and it's, again, it's great to have somebody seeing it through those eyes that you maybe don't see it as a writer. Yeah, with, with us, well, go ahead, Kevin. No, I was going to say, whenever I be in my office and I saw Paris with Neil Aaron was our line producer, whenever you see those two guys come in your office, you know something has gone terribly wrong. But they always come in, and the, the great ones do, and these are great ones right here, is that um, they come in with ideas for solutions. And solutions that sometimes you're just not... And I'm not speaking for Joel and Joe. They probably have it all figured out, but I don't. And that's, I don't have the solutions in my head because you guys have the experience of production that, that I don't know, but I'm learning all the time. So, um, anyway. Yeah, what I was going to say is it's like in pitch, it was baseball. And there was a struggle, maybe speak freely, um, because some forces that were involved in financing the show thought there should be less baseball. And some people who were doing the show, like us, loved baseball and loved the drama that happened during a baseball game. So almost every episode, the struggle with us, and we were really united in this, was how can we figure out how we can get this juicy baseball? I mean, this, is, this episode is about she's almost going to pitch a no-hitter. How do we do that without playing baseball? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how do we do that? And, you know, how do we do this great game, you know, up in Candlestick Park with just, you know, one day? You know, so we're always trying to figure out the drama, how we kept the story going, how we made those scenes vital. But it, it was always a puzzle. And so part of the joy of Kevin and why it was the best experience that I've had was because he's engaged creatively and, and we'll throw ideas and we'll go back and forth and we'll work with the episodic director and we'll figure out a way to make it fit in that little package somehow. And a lot of times it is revising the script or somehow a director will come up with a new way to do something or a way to shoot something that will make it simpler. And suddenly we have, you know, a, a show. And that's, that's the way a show comes together with that collaboration. That should get canceled. <laughs> yeah, that's how a show dies with that collaboration. But the unifying theme here really is collaboration. I mean, often those, those problems you talk about, Kevin, that walk into the office, those solutions are often, often better than anything we wrote or would have thought of. And you thank the fates afterwards when you look at your director's cut for those problems that made that location unavailable, for that rainstorm that flipped the schedule and and allowed the director or the DP or the locations person to have an epiphany that that never would have come along. And uh, I think for, for us in our experience on this show, for me and my experience over my whole career, trying to translate what you've written in a dictatorial way so that it's exactly what you originally had in your head is a lot less interesting than opening the door to full collaboration with really talented people. And, and the more you become partners, the, the better the end result. Which is why I like going to the Americans all the time. But it's true. I mean, it's, it, and it was part of what I was, it was so important to me as an executive producer when I was starting to be able to do my own shows, uh, that that was the environment. Because as an episodic director, Paris can speak to this. I can speak. It's not always that way. And it's a a horrific feeling because you're feeling like, I want you to exploit me. I want you to get the best out of me. And you're simply not going to get the best out of me. So you want to set up that kind of environment that people feel so justified and so empowered. Well, Well, the question becomes, what blocks that? And it's hard to imagine that there's anything that blocks that except ego. 
you know, and if people, if people are getting in the way of collaborating because they want to be the boss or they want to have this title or that title, they're literally insane. All they're do- you can only shoot yourself in the foot. And what would, what's the point? I mean, of course, everybody has self-destructive impulses, but if you want to get out of your own way and succeed, that's probably a better plan. It's almost become president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> but some of it's in too. I mean, some of it's ego, but some of it's just not knowing better. I mean, this is the excuse they're using for Trump now. He doesn't know. He's a businessman. He has no idea how to be president. Whatever. But part of it is when newer people get into the job, I'm not talking about you, Dave, but sometimes they're not... They're not how should I say it nicely, eager to learn. They've looked at the job from a great distance and seen it as enormous power and control, and I am finally the king. And what I shall say shall be the decree of the land. And in the end, the show shall be my show. And the show shall be brilliant, because I am brilliant. And that that gets in the ego. But what experience teaches you is that it doesn't get better because it's your idea. This is what I've learned as a director. Exactly what I want is not good enough, because I'm not that good. But what makes me as successful as I've been is I let other people be good. And I try to create an environment where other people can be good, especially actors, but other people in the crew, too. And if you do that, it's so much better than what you could do by Alfred Hitchcocking, I call it, and controlling every single thing. Then you get exactly what you want. And guess what? Most of the time, it's not going to be good enough. And it's not going to be good as what you really wanted, which is something better than what you imagined. So that's where you have to open it up, as Joe was saying. Well, I'll just say, as a, as a writer, that's actually a road to travel, because you start out as a writer working alone, and you learn to do everything in your own head by yourself. And so that's an actual thing for you to learn, is that when you can work with a lot of people, it'll be a lot better than something you did on your own, but you have to get there. But I, I want to I just flip this around, because I have a, a question for Paris and Tommy in this regard, because... We've also had, the the writers on this panel have had the experience, and you guys as producing directors have had the experience of getting that director's cut, and you realize that is not the show we toned. Right, that's what I was going to say. It's really easy to have faith and be collaborative when it's Paris and Tommy. Well, that's right. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, no It's really easy to be collaborative and open when it's you guys. But that only says it's it's a two-way street, and I've had the pleasure, the great pleasure of working with Paris, and, and now... Tommy over many years and you know my this is experientially what I felt with you but you articulated it in our first meeting I'll never forget our first meeting season one of the Americans and I had known you by reputation I was a lot less comfortable with you than than I was now because I was kind of in awe of Tommy Shlomi I didn't know Tommy Shlomi I knew Tommy Shlomi (laughs) and I remember sitting in, in uh, my office there, in our office in Soho at the time, and there I was in awe, and, and one of the first things you said is, guys, let me tell you what I think my job is. My job is to take the audience by the hand and walk them through your story, and I want to take this prep period and get inside your story so I can do that. I never heard that articulated so clearly and beautifully by a director, and I think that attitude, it, it cuts both ways from, from the writers, but also from the director. It's got to be a mutual collaboration, and that's where the magic happens, I think. And on that, I just can I, I, I would love to hear what that com- those conversations were from, in our, like just the aesthetic of the shows that you guys have created between your first director that's coming in to do the first episode and the writers. Like, in terms of, like, the visual style, the references, what were some of, like, and just being really specific about the first episodes for all of these, what were those specific references and what were those 
specific conversations that you were having about the aesthetic and the vision and the style of your shows? I'm not sure I understand. In other words, so we're, when we're, a new director shows up or the, for the as very a director? first episode of a show. Do you mean the pilot the or pilot? after yeah, the pilot? Yeah, the pilot of the okay. show. Like, what are those specific conversations that you guys are having, of whether it's other shows, whether it's a movie, clips, music, well, I paintings? think we all worked. I mean, I would, I, I, you know, I can tell you for me, the first thing is, you know, obviously, if it's something that it's been sent to me or that I've been developing, whatever it might be, but it's, you know, do I have a connection? with that writer and what is that writer's vision of this so that I can know that we can in fact become collaborators from this point on that's the first thing I might love a script and at this point especially in my career and sit with a writer and go I'm not doing this show I mean it's just not going to have what the experience that Joel just described so it won't be there so that's the first thing then once that happens for me you know it, it is it's a little alchemy every script is a little different I, I use still photographs probably more than anything else, you know, that I'll sort of pull stills and sort of have nothing to do necessarily with movies or movie stills. They could be, I, you know, have a very large collection of black and white, you know, uh, photography books. So it'll be from that. And then you start to visualize it yourself. And you, but mostly for me, it's just I'm going to get this story down to as tight as I can. That's all it is. So that from this point on, when I communicate with a production designer, an editor, a DP, or an actor, what we're really now talking about is the story. Do you know? So it's just story, story, story. And then I'll have these other aids to sort of show. But even a DP, when I'm talking to a DP, I never talk to a DP at first about, wouldn't it be great if we shot this show, high contrast, and we did this, 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 this. Nothing to do with that. It's like story, story, story. And I want to see what they're thinking uh, how that then gets processed in their brain. It's the same way that why you would never do a line reading to an actor. You just want to, want to talk about it and what the active element, what you want in the scene, see what they're going to come up with. So it just, it, it really is understanding the story and first understanding the story with the first collaborator, which is the writer. They start the process of collaboration. Yeah, when uh, on pitch, um when I want it, when I, there's a job I really want, I'm going to campaign. And pitch was a job I really wanted. So, and I knew they were considering other people, and I didn't like the other people they were considering. <laughs> I thought they were not adequate. Um, so I, uh, I did not ask for that job. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did was I did a presentation. I did a PowerPoint presentation because I love me some PowerPoint. So I, I put together a PowerPoint presentation that had photos, some of my work, some photos that I grabbed off the internet. It had some video in it. I think it had the car crash and whiplash, which is the car crash, for those of you who saw the pilot, was an integral part of it and how I wanted to shoot that. And I put together a presentation that I hoped would convince them that I was the right person for it, which it did. But then that presentation evolved as we developed the pilot to become the studio's presentation. And then with the collaboration of all the creators and, and with Kevin, we created a more advanced presentation and much longer that added even more elements to it. Uh, it didn't subtract many of the elements that I originally brought in, but it refined some and then added some more. And so it became this lengthy sales presentation, basically, for the show. That everything in it, I can look at it today, we eventually did in that show. How we used the Fox cameras, how we went from the Fox cameras to the live action, how we were going to actually deal with the, uh, the documentary feel of her life 
as a single person in the crowd versus her flashbacks and how those are going to be treated. All that stuff is in there. I think the only thing that wasn't really in there were the transitions to the flashbacks, which we developed later. So that's, that's, we had something to see. And I really like having something to see that we can all talk about because you can look at it and you can talk about it in words, but until you actually see it visually, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's how we built it together um, to become what the show was. It's still a legendary PowerPoint at, on Pico. <laughs> they still reference it. Even like this, like this year's pilots, they kept saying, well, there's nothing like Paris is like show and tell. So. Oh, we had music and it was like all sophisticated. There were dissolves. It was crazy. <laughs> it was like a little show. You have fucked it up for all of us. <laughs> well, and that is my goal. They just wanted <laughs> want me every job. In, they just wanted me to come in and talk about the pilot. And now it's like they want you know, basically the pilot to be shot so that you can see what the pilot's going to look like when it's shot. But, but I'll say, I think there's a point, and, and Kevin, you know, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but whether it's a PowerPoint or whether it's simple conversation from, from the director collaborator to the cinematographer or the casting person or whatever, there, there's a point in, in all of that where new ideas start to get triggered then for the writer and the writing staff. And at that point, the circle is complete and closed. And what started with a, with a, with a writer or, or writers sitting down at a com- computer screen with a blinking cursor now becomes a living, creative organism. And that's, that's when it becomes really exciting. And for you to see the actors, too. I mean, in other words, now it is alive. Right. It is actually an alive thing. Do you guys ever, after a season, and for me, after a season, but do you ever, do you ever look back and go... Obviously, Kevin is still in mourning. I'm starting, yeah. I'm starting to smell temp, too. <laughs> We've got to let it go. Only in television. Um, where you go at the end of it, you look back, because remember that when you first start, you, you guys are in it right now on Americans, where you look, well, you're going to see it now. I don't know how, did you guys shoot all your episodes? Or you just did the pilot, or you guys, so it's, oh yeah, we're done. But you look at that grid, and it's just blank. And you go, I don't know, in a year from now, these shows are going to air on a, a network, tele, network or cable, or premium TV, or Netflix. <laughs> um, and you don't know what they're going to be, and yet when you're done, you look back, and they've all been shot in these wonderful, so it's the most rewarding feeling to have that and go, wow, we, we, we did it. And it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. We try not to stop to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> jo- Joe only wants to stop to eat lunch. It's true. Were you gonna... oh. so, so you guys had mentioned like, what happens when you see a director's cut that you didn't... It's not how you guys toned it. What are conversations when you guys start seeing dailies come back that aren't quite the way that you guys are hoping things are going and are you guys stepping in and what does that sort of look like when something might start going a little awry well sometimes I'll let you guys speak to this but sometimes it doesn't even get to dailies (laughs) (laughs) you'll get a call from the set where this this isn't going well but we've had on for pitch we we had a pretty with exception of maybe one um, had a great roster of directors in the major. Yeah, when it's... I blame myself immediately um, because I, I learned from Tommy on the West Wing and from Mark Tinker before that on NYPD Blue and the other producer directors that I've actually figured out how to do this job from is that if a director's really going off the rails and you're not getting the show you want, you didn't prep them properly. 
or they didn't understand that process. Somehow you didn't spend enough time drilling into their minds, or they're just the wrong person, which sometimes can happen. But usually I say, uh, you know what? I didn't emphasize that. I immediately go to myself and sort of do my own inventory. And a lot of times it is actually my fault because I wasn't clear about really what we think the show is. And so they were right. They were doing their own show. And I always say to directors, if I remember, you're not actually doing your own show. You're doing our show that's invested with you. You're, you're, coming, you're coming through our show to express yourself. You're not expressing yourself first and using our show to do that. So you have to really have those things in perspective. When things have gone awry, I see directors are showing off or they're creating shots that don't have anything to do with the story or they're torturing the actors, which I loathe. And all of that is stuff that I feel I should have headed off at the pass. And sometimes it'll be a day or two into shooting and we are summoned to the set as producer directors or as writers because we have to bring the cast and the director back into focus, as I like to say nicely, because things are already going off. But usually, it, it, Kevin's right, for us, it's before the dailies even hit that we know shit's going down and we need to start fixing it. Sometimes I've had to sit the directors down and we've had cry fests in shows where, we, where I had to be brutally honest about what I thought was happening. And a lot of times that's because the star of the show is incredibly unhappy. And if the star of the show is incredibly unhappy, I know I'm not going to get an episode. So I have to address that. And part of my job as a producer-director is, you know, to address that. That's part of my skill set. I have a little box of tissue. I use my in-treatment experience. We sit across each other and slowly we find out what is the psychological drama that's playing here and how can I uh, fix it. And it involves both people. Sometimes I have to get the two of them together to actually have that conversation. But often it's one at a time. I, mean, I was going to say a version of actually the exact same thing, which is <clears throat> even now sometimes there'll be you know, a scene that, that something seems to have gone a little sideways with, and, and usually we can fix it in post, but I don't feel like we ever had really, have not had problems with the entire episode since season one, and that was really because in season one, we didn't know what the show was yet, and we were, I think, delivering scripts that had problems with it, and if the script had problems, then the show's going to come back with problems, so... I think I'll remind us. you after the panel of a couple episodes you're forgetting. <laughs> But, but, I, uh, but, but what I, I was going to say, a different version of a different version of what you were saying, which is sometimes, I, I think, uh, sometimes it's because uh, we've failed as writers. I mean, sometimes you'll look at a scene or a cut and you'll just realize, boy, you know, we, it'd be nice to blame the director, <laughs> but it's because we wrote a shitty scene. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes, you're right, it's someone who is trying to show off on our show that it's a particularly challenging thing because our whole show is about kind of being real and keeping it simple. Um, but uh, sometimes it sometimes it's, has to do with story structure and sometimes it just has to do with how the episode was put together in editing and often you can turn a director's cut that didn't feel right into the most perfect episode of the show ever. I mean, that's what I was going to say. It's that First of all, I, I, much like you, Joe, I mean, I've been very, very fortunate. I mean, I think part of that is that I'm very adamant and, you know, the networks can't decide who you can hire as a director. You trust me to sort of do that. And the people that I've been lucky enough to work with, people like Paris and some wonderful people and brand new people, uh, you know, it's all about their prep. It's all about giving them as much time and prep as they can have. And so... There have been very, very few incidences, and this is hundreds of 
episodes of television at this point that, that I've gone, oh my God, this is not at all what I've expected. What is harder for me is if I find out somebody is not treating the crew or the cast in the way that they should, in fact. And when I get that from people, and even though the episode is going to be good and might be great, they will not be coming back to the show. More than, ah, we had to dig that one out of the dirt a little bit. You know, that episode was hard. But remember, there are three shows. There's a show that's written, the show that's directed, and the show that's cut. And it's pretty amazing what can be done in the editing room. And the luxury of television is, and if worse comes to worse, you can go back and pick something up or shoot something again if you have to. And circling back. I didn't quite understand something on The Americans, one of the episodes. And... We had to go back and reshoot part of that because I made a mistake. <laughs> and circling back to what you started with at the very top of the, the panel was working with good human beings, nice people, great collaborators, being so key to what we do. Um, so we're going to open up to questions. I'll start with you since your hand flew up. Quick. He made one mistake in hundreds of episodes. That is, if you take nothing else away from this panel, it's that Tommy Schlamy made a mistake. That is the thing to remember. And still got hired. Well, I'm going to say, first of all, that even defining what a mistake is is, is a complicated thing. We're, we're working in the arts. So actually, a mistake is it's not even, even easy to say what it is. It probably goes back to what we've all been talking about. And my guess is we would all agree is that when the fit is bad, when you have trouble collaborating with someone, when you're having trouble listening to each other, when the communication isn't there, that's really when, when you're not really eager to work together again. And that will inevitably manifest itself in things coming out in the show that aren't quite right and you can label that mistakes or, or whatever you want but if you're in collaboration with each other then when things go wrong it, it does, you don't even care whose fault it is or if it's a mistake or if it's your mistake or their mistake, it doesn't matter because you're in a good relationship and you're making something together and you all know things are going to go wrong because that's part of any enterprise Well, and, and even, even more mistakes come sometimes from being tired but sometimes they come from taking creative risks. And boy, if people aren't allowed to take creative risks, everything's going to get very boring very fast. So, uh, you know, that's the last thing you want someone to pay for. You really want to find a way to encourage that, but to keep it in the context of the show. So, as Joe says, I think it's, it's all about an open collaboration. There's only one time in maybe the 10 shows that I've been executive producer, director, and where I had to replace a director. Um, which is very difficult to do because the DGA makes it very difficult for many reasons. But we were in prep, and it was a show that involved a lot of fire and involved a building on fire and a lot of people running through it. And every time we would go to this location to talk about how the fire was going to be done, there was a different plan. 
you know, now the actors were here, now the fire was going to be on this wall, now the stunt people were going to do this, and we got incredibly anxious. Um, and we couldn't nail down this person to a specific plan. And so we had to replace them. And it took a process, but it, it, it needed to be done. Because in that particular case, it doesn't matter. We were not even going to begin that episode because now we're talking about safety. And now we're talking about people's lives. And we weren't going to start the episode until we were secure that we knew how to do this. And we just lost faith that this person could do that. Now this person is still a director and it's, it's you know someone that I, I consider a friend. But at that point, he, he was very new. And he could possibly have injured someone. And there was just a no-tolerance policy for that. But generally, people can always recover. Generally, people who've just fucked up a scene or taken things, if you really talk to them, and I've had that hard conversation with directors after they've done an episode that's been less than pleasant, and some of them have come back and learned from it, and some of them have not. Some of them have said, I'm an idiot, I'm wrong, um, my vision is corrupting, and I'm controlling them and they haven't come back, but a few directors that I've talked to after the fact have really taken it to heart and really learned from it and really changed their process and have gone on to be successful. So I try to have that conversation after something's not swimmingly, not gone swimmingly, but um, it, it's not always heard. Yeah, back there. What is the casting process? You know, it's been great that Tommy loves being in the room because I feel like now that everything gets put on tape, like Tommy, if he can be there, will be there. And that's one of those places where as, a sh like, as somebody running a show, running a room, like you can't be in cast. It's so hard to get to casting sessions. It's just a thing that you don't end up having time for. And it was great that Tommy was there to be in the room. But he is very respectful of the directors that have been hired. Um, and you do want to give them the first crack at it. They have to own it, right? You have to feel like they've, they come in, they understand it, they're inside that story. And you really want to, unless you really disagree, you know, you want to give them certainly the first chance to weigh in, right? When that email comes to all the EPs and it's like, okay, these are the three choices, I always try to wait for that, the director of the episode to, to kind of make their selection before you come in. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully I can come in and just be like, great, 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 great. And you're really happy with the choices. Did they, did they already do the casting panel? Because I know we have... No, it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow? Okay, that's great. Because you'll talk to Wendy O'Brien. But on Sons, they had the best process. Where Kurt did not like to be in casting because it takes a long time and he had other things to do. And it's kind of exhausting. So we would cast, it would be me, the director of the episode, and the line producer. We basically would sit through inhuman, in-person casting, which we're, I'm very much a stickler for. They'd have to come out in the heat to our place over at Sherman Way and actually do the part. Um, and generally, we didn't make offers to people because 
we had bad experiences with that unless there was someone we all knew from another experience. And then we would send the links to Kurt of the people that we liked. And we'd have our little fight there. And I would normally give the director the final vote. I mean, maybe twice in four years did I overrule for the director's own good their choice because I knew that I'd had a bad experience or I just felt that person was totally wrong. But often we'd even at least send that person to Kurt to make the final decision without me putting any stink on it. Then Kurt would watch it on tape very quickly, actually, and would make the final decision. And that process always worked for us. And I would say, let's not put anyone or send anyone to Kurt that we're not going to be happy with. If we don't have someone, one or two choices that we're happy with, we're not sending them. We're going to keep casting. Don't send anyone that you can't live with, was my rule. And then Kurt would make the final decision. Worked out well. I just want to add, since that just quickly, the, those are great process thoughts. I just, uh, I just want to say, first of all, Mark Sachs, an excellent mentor and and fellow camper and campmate of mine at Stage Door Manor Summer Camp, <laughs> friend to this day. Stage Door Manor, you can Google it. Great place, of course. Yeah, and John. Well, I wasn't there with Josh. I was there with Johnny Cryer, John Cryer now, uh, the great John Cryer, and Mary Stuart Masterson. Uh, on, uh, with whom I performed in Babes in Arms. Um, fortunately, something for my sake you cannot Google. But what I do want to say is, in the spirit of collaboration, casting directors are artists. They are, these are not craftspeople, the people in the, in the credits of these films. And you think about the Americans, and you think for a minute that Joe and I will sit down and we'll say, oh, okay, we need a beautiful early 20s um, someone uh, who seems unassuming, uh, but uh, also turns out to be very, very smart, wily, and manipulative. It's going to be a long, complicated story. By the way, she needs to speak fluent Russian. <laughs> Find us Annette Mahendru. And on and on and on. Uh, you know, these, these people are helping create your show. Well, I'll be more than happy to take this. Uh, <laughs> uh, look, I think, every, I think the greatest opportunity for someone to learn how to direct is to be on a television show. It is just an incredible gift to those who have an enormous desire to do that because it's school right in front of you. And you can, you know, you, you can take advantage of that and really take advantage. And those that do, it, they make end up being wonderful directors, DPs, uh, actors. What it should never be, from my point of view, is a perk. It shouldn't be, God, I'm on the show. I think, I mean, maybe it'd be fun to direct and then never want to direct again after that. I think it, what it does is it dilutes the craft that I believe so strongly in. So I think it's something. Whereas you look at Math, Matthew Reese's episodes on The American, that's a real director. That's a real director, and I can't wait for him to finish this show so that I could hire him to direct something because he's really, really good at it. And so I think that's, you know, the most, for me, the most important thing. I will also say as a director, the best actor to ever work with is the actor that just directed their first episode of television. 
uh, because they are the most accommodating human being on the planet. Uh, but that only lasts for one or maybe two episodes. Maybe one last question right here. How do you keep a consistent tone? Well, I think there's really no other way to do it, right? Because they need time to prep beforehand and then to shoot the episode and then to edit it afterwards. So essentially, you couldn't have a, a, a director go continuously for 13 or however many episodes. Although they, Right, exactly. Oh, that's why you have a directing producer who can oversee the whole thing. Although they do seem to occasionally, on some of these shows now, have somebody direct 10 episodes, which seems... Incredible. What does that person do? Prep all ten episodes ahead of time? Yeah, I mean, what it happens is now they're all written, yeah. then they're all shot, then they're all edited. Right. In other words, you're not editing in the same place. But I will say that on West Wing, we actually ended up in the third year. That we brought in two other people. I brought you know two other people who were co-EPs to direct along with me, so that there was three of us directing that show because it was a pretty high you know, bar to sort of, we didn't always be able to get Paris, who got nominated for every episode he ever did. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and actually that, you know, was very, it's really the actors more than anything. I mean, for me, it's the actors, I think, feel so comfortable with the people that they already know instead of, here's somebody coming in. And as an episodic director, you have a very short window of time to get the crew and the actors to believe in you that you, in fact, are the captain of that particular ship and that particular episode's tough. Yeah, on um, NYPD Blue, which we did before this, obviously you've heard of David Milch, and David Milch would write scripts certainly by the day you were supposed to shoot them. (laughs) (laughs) But often no sooner. Um, And the problem with that was, for a guest director, it was almost impossible for them to have the time to figure out what David Milch was really saying in his incredibly complex dialogue and still deliver it on the stage when literally they would get the pages that day. And we would have someone cast, and they would be in wardrobe, and they would not know what they were going to say until that day. Um, And so what we ended up doing is very much like West Wing. We had Mark Tinker, we had Michael Robin, and we had myself, and we did most of the episodes in those seasons because we kind of knew... Uh, we already had a shorthand. We actually were there. And very often when we would try someone new just to spell us or because it, it didn't work out, they tended to fail because of the difficulty of getting into the David Milch head in that time. And so as the show went on, we tended to more securely, you know, basically reduce the number of episodes that we gave to outside directors just to protect the show and to protect the process of it. Um, but on a normal show, if you can get them written ahead, you can you could have... You can prep people all the time, but they can't prep and shoot and edit and still do another show. It's just not physically possible. Yeah, once once that physically possible. Right. I mean, once that train leaves the station, it doesn't stop running until it hits the end point. So you really do need that, and it is part of the challenge in keeping that. And you look, you rely on your DP heavily because that's the guy who was also there with your producer. Who's the guy who's setting the look, who understands what you've shot previously. I mean, we used alternating DPs for Snowfall, which I thought was great and saves you time and money because they can. the other DP then can be prepping 
So you get in a location, the DP isn't having to see it for the first time and be like, oh, shit, what are we going to do? And he's just exhausted because he's shot in the other episode. Um, but that helps you a tremendous amount, keeping the look of it consistent. I think that's all we have time for. But one thing, I, I mean, I, I think the, the main theme between what all of you guys are saying is collaboration and that real partnership between every, every artist within the entire crew, within all of your keys, with your actors, collaboration being so key. I want to thank you guys so much for watching, and I want to thank you guys so much for creating. And thank, thank you guys. Thanks again for listening to the Writers' Panel. Once again, my name is Ben Blacker. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, and tell me who you want to see on these panels. I'm always looking for new guests. I always want to know what television you are enjoying. Like the Writers' Panel on Facebook at facebook.com slash Panel. Visit me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. Please do remember to rate and review the Writers' Panel on iTunes. It is really helpful to keeping us visible something that's very important in these uh, transition-y times, but even after these transition-y times. Also, as I said, it makes me feel good about myself. And what writer doesn't need that? Thanks again to Forever Dog and to the ATX Television Festival and this new ATX Television Festival podcasting network endeavor. Be sure to go to atxfestival.com. Check out this year's fest. There's so much great stuff coming up. I hope to see you there. And I look forward to you hearing me again next week on the Writers Panel. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.